Welcome to your Digital Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Boynette from the Welcome Sanger Institute. And this is our first episode of season two. So welcome back, guys. And this week is a Skills Lab episode, and it's all about scientific writing. And joining me is Jeff McDonald, a professor at the University of Saskatchewan in Canada, and the author of a book titled Navigating an Academic Career, colon, a brief guide for PhD students, postdocs, and early career faculty. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thank you very much, Christine. Great to be here. So um, I wonder if you can tell uh, our listeners a little bit more about yourself and your background, your research, everything. We want to know everything. Yeah. Well, I'm a, a professor, as you said, at the University of Saskatchewan in Canada, and I'm also the associate director of our Global Institute for Water Security. I have some visiting appointments. Uh, I'm a visiting chair in water at the University of Birmingham, just down the road from you, and a distinguished visiting professor at Tsinghua University in uh, China. So my background's in environmental science with a focus on water. And uh, yeah, I'm e eager to chat with you about the writing process generally. And this is one of the, the key elements of the book that you mentioned, how to, not only the mechanics of it, but the psychology of writing, the time, the place, how to kind of learn about yourself and the writing process as you begin your academic career. Oh my goodness, I can't wait to get into the meat of all of that. And I love that you said you learn a lot about yourself in writing. So I'm really looking forward to get into the chat. But before we get into the meat of writing, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions just about the book more generally. First, what made you write this book? Well, I guess, you know, it was my own uh, struggles over the years. I did a PhD in New Zealand, so I was a Commonwealth scholar many, many years ago. This was in the mid-late 1980s. And as a Canadian going to New Zealand, studying in the British system with a professor who really worked outside my area of hydrology, when I landed my first job in the United States, I really felt like a fish out of water. I didn't really understand how the system worked. I found that no, not only was the, the publication and networking and teaching a bit strange, but I didn't really have a network of mentors or even past professors I could lean on. So I guess the book reflects maybe my own trials and tribulations. And then also the experience with my own 75 or so postdocs, PhD students, master's students over these last few decades. And what I've seen as kind of common challenges that they've faced. So the book is really a reflection on, on many of those aspects of my own academic life. Wow, I really appreciate your candor there. And 75 students, I mean, congratulations, should I say? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a, a huge number of, of scientists you've put out into the world. So congratulations. I wanted to ask you another question. I think you mentioned in the book, and you talk about characteristics that make a successful academic. And you highlight uh, time management, soft skills, leadership, mentoring that you've just talked about. Can you give us some you know, highlights or cliff notes of what type of information your listeners can garner from the, uh, from the book? The book is really based on a few working life articles I'd written on the back page of Science Magazine and a few in Nature as well. Both now, for your listeners, have uh, very good mentoring sections. And of course, this has become more and more a part of academic culture, which is great because uh, the challenges now are, are much greater than when I started. You know, when I started, there was maybe a dozen people interviewing or competing for an academic job. Now for a lectureship where you are or an assistant professorship where I am, over 100 applicants would not be uncommon. 
Wow. So these kinds of, of uh, tools and help, I think, are, are, are very useful. But in terms of maybe just some of the traits of, of uh, successful scientists, and in addition to those that you listed, some of these are, are as old as time. You know, there's a, the best book I've found and I've, I've drawn on in my own writing is uh, this book by Beveridge, who was a professor at, at Cambridge. And it was called The Art of Scientific Investigation, published in 1950. Boy, if you can find that at a flea market or a used bookstore for very little money, I'm sure, it's just as relevant today as it was back then. And he talks about things like an indomitable spirit that characterizes almost all successful scientists, going back to you know the first scientists in the 1600s. And uh, today we might call it grit. Mm-hmm. But this this spirit of nothing can stand in my way. I'm going to you know persevere through setbacks. I think if I was looking for one single trait, that might be that might be it. Like the golden trait that you like this. <laughs> the golden. This will take you right to the top floor of, of academia. I like it. Well, it's a it is it is not easy, and uh, it's competitive. And I know you've spoken about that in previous podcasts, and. That's a theme that will likely come into today when we talk about writing. One is just understands the nature of the game, the rules of the game, and somehow have fun playing the game. That That is really key and key in the writing elements as well. Thank you. That's actually really important. Uh, knowing the rules, I think that makes um, one's life easier. But I think I like what you've said that it, it's truly a journey and it's more of a marathon than a sprint. This career is it's a labor of love sometimes, but it truly is love. When when the highs are high, it's really exciting. But like in life, there are always lows. Right. Okay. So if you don't mind, we'll just get into the the meat of it. And I wanted to ask, and this is follows on from what we were just discussing. And why do you think like writing is so important in one scientific or academic career? What what, what makes it so important? Well, I guess it's kind of the evolved as in, in terms of the metric that we uh we do the sorting and, and compare people and their impact on their chosen subfield or field. Uh, it's based on the writing output. And really, this is this has always been the case. Even Darwin talked about a scientist's life would be a happy one if they never had to write and only observe. So this again, these things we talk about today are not new. Perhaps they're just heightened by the the competitive nature of of science today as compared to generations past. It's the culmination of your scientific work, and it's maybe not the only, but still is the measure of of your, you know, your scientific worth. No, I don't know. That's probably too harsh, but... Cachet, maybe? Like, yeah, like your... Yeah, it's the metric. And and of course, today, you know, we're all uh, slaves to the H-index. This is a fairly recent thing. That was developed, I think, in 2005 by a faculty member at UC San Diego. And it's a way to then quantify quantity, quality in a way that lets you start to sort and understand someone's uh, productivity. But I think what I try to make clear on the book is not to be uh, so focused on these metrics, but simply do your best work, publish in the best places you can, and again, enjoy the journey because it is quite a privilege to have a, a career as a researcher, especially if you've been lucky enough to uh, get a research position at an institute like yourself or a university or, or government lab. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned the H-index. 
Have you ever heard of maybe some institutions requiring you to have a maybe minimum amount of publications per year or a certain age index to be given a promotion? Is that a thing? Sure. I, I think that uh, in the United States, for instance, where tenure is a thing, that is a formal evaluation period much longer than in the UK, uh, usually it's six full years. In the seventh year, you'd get tenure. Maybe it's not written down, but there are unwritten rules about numbers of publications. It's tougher to kind of enforce a H index you know, number linked to that. But I've seen H index come into hiring committee discussions and having a kind of a minimum threshold that they'd be willing to accept of a person. At institutes in Europe I visited, many institute directors will take the H index and divide it by the years since PhD to get a normalized H index. Because of course, as one goes on and on, it's like it's like saving for retirement, you know, compound interest, your citations compound as well. So it's important to divide it by number of years since PhD. Of course, it varies a lot from research area to research area, but in, a, in an institute where you might have a rather homogeneous group of scientists, that's also seen as, a, I think, a common way to begin to think about performance relative to one's peers. And do you think then, for example, just staying on this, this thought a little bit, would that affect you know, where your placement is on the paper, for example, I think in computing, they, they do it by um, alphabetical order. But, you know, in our industry, especially it's senior author first and first author gets all the glory. Even if, you know, people did contribute substantially to the paper, what, what are your thoughts on that and how does that affect the H-index? Yeah, it's a good question. In, in fact, it does not affect the H-index whatsoever. Simply your participation on the paper, regardless of where you are on the authorship chain, counts equally. But many institutes, uh, many departments, particularly in an increasingly interdisciplinary research world, are starting to think about placement. I'm in a, a school of environment and sustainability where I have toxicologists, where I have social scientists uh, working in my same department. And how we evaluate each other, we can't really look at the H index because of the things that you're talking about. Uh, some traditions, you know, it's only books, single authored. If you are a toxicologist putting out 40 papers a year, which is the, the tradition in particular subfields, then how do you compare that to, you know, a rural sociologist who's writing a book every two years? There's certainly more than these metrics. And I think this is a trap that many young scientists can fall into. It's, uh, you know, like Twitter followers or other, <laughs> other metrics that are so seductive, but can be, can be destructive, you know, as well. Oh, that's so good you said that, because I think early on in my career, when I first heard of the H-Index in my postdoc, I didn't even hear of it in my PhD. And, you know, you start to really obsess about it and you're like, I need to get it. But I think you lose, as you say, somewhat the kind of love of writing or doing the actual science because you're worried, is this paper citable? <laughs> as you're writing it, rather than just reporting um, your results, you know? I mean, I mean, for me, you know, I've been, a, I've been an academic for 15 years before the uh, H-index was a thing. And I remember one of my PhD students, when this H-index was all of a sudden there and becoming popular, she loved to tease me. And uh, she looked at the H-index for a leader in our field who happened to be at Lancaster University and then looked at my H-index and her H-index as a new PhD student who only published a couple of papers. 
And she joked that my H index was closer to hers than to this leader in the field. So it can, <laughs> it was kind of sobering. And, you know, I think I was saved a lot of uh, probably anxiety by not knowing, well, it, it just didn't exist. But uh, I think it, it just fuels as so many things with social media, for instance, anxiety and early career scientists and, you know, comparison is the killer of joy. And I think remembering that somehow in uh, in academic writing and the pursuit and publishing papers is is so important. And I think on top of comparing yourself to other people, I think even too harshly comparing yourself to yourself can lead you to that awful cycle of anxiety, I think. Yeah. And going into anxiety, I'll say one thing that I think a lot of people have, myself included, is like, how do you get over anxiety of putting word to paper. And I think in your book, you term it a cul-de-sac. Tell me how, or tell our listeners and me, how, how can one get over that hump and, and start to write something? Well, I think, you know, uh, knowing that perfection is the enemy of good. So one of the traits I see with many early career researchers, particularly at the PhD level, is this desire to really get something on paper that's, you know, so polished and so perfect. But that can really stymie progress initially. And unless you have trust in your advisor or your co-authors that they will accept you warts and all, you know, they'll take your rough prose and improve it. And it's like a ping pong match going forward. Knowing that, I think, gets you unstuck and maybe uh, removes some of the fear and barrier of getting started and getting something uh, going. Mark Manson has a book out it's become a quite a bestseller. You see it in bookshops and airports, although we have not been in airports for a while lately. I think the book's called The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. Oh, okay. I'll just say it that way, given this is probably a <laughs> PG-13 podcast. <laughs> yes. Anyway, he talks about this thing called the do something principle. And I think in terms of going to your question about you know how we get going, we often think that you get inspiration. The inspiration then motivates you to then complete an activity. And he talks about it maybe being not that way. You do something, you have some action that then motivates you, inspires you to then write. So, for example, you know, prior to uh, our recent pandemic shutdown, mm -hmm. I was uh, teaching in China and I, I really wanted to start on a, a paper on the, the flight home. But I got on the flight and they'd upgraded me and the meal was so good and gosh, there was a movie and it's like... <laughs> Oh man, I'm I'm really not motivated to work on this paper, but I needed to use that time to get some writing done. But then I got my laptop open and I started, you know, working on a little lecture just as a something to do and that that action somehow motivated me and then inspired me to get into the paper. I think there's many many factors to kind of getting started and getting over that initial, you know, inertia that might be holding uh, us back in early career. So just write anything, put something to paper, even if it's bullet points or maybe write a spider diagram or something, anything really you're saying. just Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, write drunk, edit sober. That's what we say in Canada. Oh, yeah, I've heard that before. I think it's, is it Dow? No, it was, it's, it's, it's some famous explorer that said write drunk, edit sober. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's just, it's just knowing that uh, getting something on paper, I think, you know, in terms of going down cul-de-sacs and getting stuck, that was my problem in early career. I thought the structure of a normal 
scientific paper with introduction, methods, results, discussion, conclusions was enough of a structure for me to somehow write from the bottom up, meaning I'd start at the introduction and I'd, I'd, I'd work my way down the paper using those as my guardrails. And I found in early career, I had way more unfinished papers than finished papers. And that's because I'd start off and even with that basic structure, I'd write my way down many dead ends. And I guess what I found in my own writing and working with students was to take the opposite approach, the top-down approach, I call it. It doesn't focus on the writing per se. It focuses on the structure. So rather than 90% of your time being writing from the bottom up, about a third of the time on papers that I work on are just at the structural stage. A third of the time is writing and another third is the editing. So the idea of this top-down approach, that, I, as I call it, is to go to a whiteboard. And if a PhD student's come into my office, they've got an idea for a, a paper linked to their thesis. I sit back, they go to the whiteboard, and they always have to answer three questions on the, on the whiteboard. What's the status quo? What's wrong with the status quo? And how does this work go beyond the status quo? And I think when you're starting off, you're so excited about the third one, how this goes beyond the status quo. And unless you have a very clear statement of what is the status quo and what's wrong with it, then it's tough to contextualize the importance of the, the work. So we would go around on that probably with one or two meetings to really refine that pitch, if you like. And that really forms the introduction of the paper and sets up the objectives. And then we fill in the outline with more subheadings and even sub-subheadings to the point where the paper is structured and the sub-sub-subheadings are the paragraph topics. So we've spent a third of the total time we'll ever spend on this paper and we've not written one sentence. But it gives us a structure that we can sit back and take a 10,000 meter view of and identify maybe a half a dozen figures and to see if it really resonates, if it's aligned, if the title, if the setup with the status quo elements I mentioned, the results of discussion, they're all kind of resonating on the same frequency, then and only then will we start to write. I've found that has massively helped with uh, quantity and quality because now writing the paper is just filling in the blanks, filling in those sub, sub, sub headings and all of that agony about you know getting stuck and writing your way down dead ends goes away. I've found that to be uh, to be very helpful, and uh, also it helps I think for uptake because knowing the literature, which is critical for knowing what is the status quo, but crucially being able to put your finger on what's wrong with the status quo, that's what really helps to advance the field, and I think uh, help that paper to be cited. So that's, that's something, yeah, I talk about in the book and I, I've found with my own students a very helpful method. That sounds so fantastic and almost and liberating, actually. Not almost, it is liberating. And I think I wish <laughs> I had employed such a, maybe I'll, going forward, this is exactly what I'll do. And I like that you said that you identify what your status quo is, what isn't working, and then what, what's revolutionary about your work. And I think they have a similar type in marketing and I think in industry when they're selling products, that's exactly what, you know, finding about the competitor's landscape. What are you doing to change it? 
and and how it, it's just it works. So I think that's good to move the project forward for in in your case and academics cases to to write the the paper, you know. Yeah, and lets you lets you see where the novelty is each step of the way at that outline stage. So it it helps to uh, yeah feature what's what's new, what's the contribution as you sit back and and look at it structurally. Ah, then from that as well, like your conclusion will be like fairly easy to write thereafter because you're just taking the highlights of each of the small paragraphs that you created. Oh, this is a really fantastic system. You should patent it. This <laughs> we'll call it the McDonald's system. This is cool. And you mentioned just now that you think of half a dozen figures. Is there a maximum? And you know, I, I anticipate that there's different industries. Is there a minimum or a maximum? For particular journals what what is the, the is there a happy number <laughs> <laughs> well uh usually less is more i think it just varies so much from field to field it's tough to answer that but i would say that you know if you're writing for let's say a high impact journal a science or nature but even a a, a derivative of of nature or science so in my world nature climate change nature geoscience there's now a number of these kind of sub journals Really, the paper is sold on the back of one figure. And I think that's increasingly common in a world where we're just oh, drowning in articles. Going back to that beverage book, he talked about in 1950, there were 50,000 periodicals at that time and 2 million articles a year published. That was 1950. Wow. Just imagine what it is now. So this utter impossibility of keeping up is in no way new, but it has gotten, you know, much more difficult with time. And I agree with you with the high impact journals. I think even from our industry, same thing with nature. What my mentor did say, you know, for a good paper, again, people don't have time. So there's a lot of people skim reading. Someone needs to be able to see it and be able to know exactly what you're telling me from the title, one figure and the conclusion, because they may never get to the meat of the, the paper. As you say, there's so many journals and everyone is, I, I think I'm always playing catch up in reading a paper. And the, the same thing he said, you know, if it's going to be multiple figures, it's three figures, one table, and then everything else uh, is in a uh, supplementary file, I think. So that's really cool. And you've kind of mentioned in your book too, there's this thing, this phenomenon saying it's a one hour workday. What is that? Well, this was from personal experience. I remember as a brand new academic going to work and I'd come home after, I don't know, 14 hours or something ridiculous at the university. And my wife would say, uh, so honey, you know, how was your day at work? And I'd say, oh, I got nothing done. And she'd look at her watch and say, what? You've been at the office for 14 hours. What do you mean you got nothing done? Well, what I really meant was I got nothing done for myself. I got nothing done in the way of paper writing. You know, I was... Uh, running from meeting to meeting, teaching, you know, advising students. And I would find that days, weeks, even months would pass without me really making material progress on a, on a paper. And again, this is, this is a, a problem that plagues not just academia, but industry and all walks of life. This idea that uh, what is important is uh, seldom urgent, and what is urgent is seldom important. I think it was Dwight D. Eisenhower that said that. And there's many different takes on that same kind of you know saying. So the, the one-hour workday idea is how to find a time of day. Now, for me now in my uh, advanced years, <laughs> for no. me it's, 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 early in the, it's early in the morning, 
But, you know, when I was in my, I don't know, late 20s, it might have been two in the morning uh, at the end of the day rather than, you know, waking up early like I do now. But the idea is uh, to wake up for me. This is this is what works. You know, time of day is very uh, life situation dependent. But wake up in the morning, put on the espresso, find my regular writing chair, room, what have you, and no distractions right until I'm spent. And it might be an hour, it might be an hour and a half, might be 45 minutes. But to do that every day, every day. And what I've found is it does a couple of things. It, it creates that kind of sacrosanct time of day for me. And I'll go in the office and if I have another long day or I have multiple long days, even if I've got nothing done you know, for myself, I've had that hour of the morning where I come home at the end of the day and I got something done. And by that, I mean, man, I got an hour of writing done. And it's just, it bathes you in feeling like you're accomplishing something and it's moving from day to day. Because the problem I had early career, if it was weeks that went by without touching the manuscript, I'd kind of forget what I was working on. And that, again, that, that time to kind of get up to speed and then I'd lose it. The daily drumbeat of writing I've found has been quite a quite a game changer. That's what I meant by the the one hour workday. Oh man, Jeff, you are speaking to me right now in my current <laughs> life. Um, I will absolutely take that and heed that advice. And everybody out there listening, I think um, this is the way forward. Writing is always the last thing to be done, and you know you end up you know answering emails all day. You can spend all day writing answering emails, but I think I really like this. And probably at the start of the day rather than at the end when your mind is full. And have you ever missed a day, even Christmas? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I am not perfect by any means. But I'm, I'm working on a textbook right now. And uh, I find when I, when I get into that, it really helps me. But if I somehow fall off the wagon, then I can be off the writing for a week or two. And then, you know, I can kind of get back on again. There was an Australian prime minister, uh, just one more quote along these lines. This is Bob Hawke, uh, who was prime minister, I think when I was doing my PhD, but I'm not sure. The things which are most important don't always scream the loudest. And I think that's the thing with writing, right? Your, your inbox is screaming to you. <laughs> you know, there are uh, things at your institute or your university or your government lab that are, you know, screaming, but the writing doesn't scream to you. And yet that's how you ultimately will be, you know, mostly measured. So uh, it is, a, it's the challenge that we all face. I think it's just intensified in a, in a social media world. The other thing the one hour workday helps to maybe uh, comfort a new researcher is that you don't need hours and hours and hours of uninterrupted time. As a PhD student, you kind of have that often because you've got this incredible luxury of working on your thesis without having to teach or serve on committees or review papers or do umpteen dozen other things that a, a, a new professional researcher would do. But then you become that lecturer or what have you. And uh, man, it's, it's, it's almost a, a, an impossible ask in terms of all that you're asked to do. So the one hour workday frees you from the idea that like in your PhD days, you needed long writing blocks. 
If you chip away at it just with a short burst, but every day, that keeps you fit and in condition like an Olympic athlete, your fitness will stay strong. And I found that to be very, very helpful. And I think with my uh, my students and postdocs who leave the nest and become professors themselves, they found that uh, to be a helpful little tiny tip. That's excellent. I think I'm, I'm going to try and adopt that and I'll let you know how it goes. This is a, a very obtuse question, but and this is obviously industry specific, but are there nuggets you can tell our listeners of what really makes a great paper? One that you want to sell to nature or, you know, relevant high, high impact publication. What do you think makes a great paper? Well, it tells a story and it brings in some dramatic elements. There, there was a professor, he was tenured at University of New Hampshire. His name is Randy Olson. And he left a tenured professorship. He was a biologist, I believe, and went to Los Angeles and enrolled in film school at USC with the, um, the goal of being a documentary film director. And he did that quite successfully. But now he's come back and written two books for academics, one called Don't Be Such a Scientist and the other called Houston, We Have a Narrative. And basically, he's come back to tell scientists exactly the question you asked. How do you tell a gripping story? And it's kind of the same thing in a proposal, an elevator pitch, a job interview, or a a high-impact paper. We, as scientists, get all caught up with details. And when I ask, you know, what do you do to a, a, a new researcher, they might say, well, I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and I do this. And by the fourth or fifth and, your eyes are kind of glazing over, and it's like, oh, okay, stop now. He talks about a vehicle which goes back to the ancient Greeks for storytelling. And it's the and, but, therefore vehicle or format. So you say, I do this and this, but this happened. Therefore, I do this now, or I find I approach my work this way. And it's the same thing, I think, with uh, engaging a reader in a, in a paper. And, but, therefore is gripping. When you talk to uh, you know the creators of South Park, when they're doing editing of their you know, irreverent, uh, comical, you know, animated uh, scripts, they're always trying to replace any ands with buts or therefores. It's done, you know, almost every movie trailer is and but therefore in terms of the suspenseful setup. So I think these two books, Houston, We Have a Narrative and Don't Be Such a Scientist, it's all about this, how to communicate in a gripping way and and but therefore can be really a, a, a game changer. And for your listeners, if you just type uh, Randy Olson, Olson, O-L-S-O-N, I believe, and but therefore into uh, YouTube, there's a very good TED talk he's given on this. And in short order, you'll you'll get a more expanded view of what I'm referring to. Oh, good. I will definitely put that in the description box, guys. So don't try to memorize it. Listen to the rest because this is these are nuggets of information. I really find that fascinating. So he did get that that from just leaving the industry completely into an industry that is perfected storytelling, essentially. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. The structure of blogs and, and opinion pieces are a bit loose. They're not as structured as a publication. Do you think kind of perfecting that writing muscle or like getting that writing muscle stronger by writing these kind of smaller pieces that have 
may probably some effect on your career, but not as you know as long and rigorous as a as a research paper. What do you think? Would that be a nice route to kind of practice that type of storytelling? I'm not sure. I think there are so few hours in the day, and there's so little time to be spent. A ruthless time management is really the key early career. There's also the Matthew effect, you know, where going back to the Bible, the, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. That applies, I think, in academic careers. So it's the, uh, the cumulative advantage to those that start explosively out of the gate. And I've seen this countless times with young academics. So I guess I'd be, in terms of those activities, writing in blogs and such, that's fine and, and could be very useful. But I'd almost think about that, phasing that in some years into your academic career. And at the beginning, focusing almost exclusively on these, like saving for retirement, you know, publishing these papers that will start to accrue citations and build your uh, portfolio. I think also having a, a strong research brand identity can be helpful. I've found in chairing, you know, prize committees in my American Geophysical Union, my, my society, like many professional fields, I think we have about 60 or 70,000 that are members of our American Geophysical Union, American Chemical Society. There's, there's many, many around the world. Anyway, in looking back in those activities, chairing prize committees, and now we're talking about looking back on careers, those that had a strong research brand identity, meaning they didn't flit from topic to topic and kind of be a scientific dilettante, but they had a, an area, two or three maybe questions that drove their research forward, and they chipped away at those for years and years and years. Those careers were usually much, much, much more successful and impactful. And I think this is something as well in an early career that can be a trap, particularly in North America, where you're driven by bringing in money. I know in the UK, you know, NERC funds are also important. But if you're using scientific calls for proposals to kind of determine what research you do, then it's kind of a tail wagging the dog in the sense that you're responding to what others want rather than focusing on the research you think the world needs. And this is very difficult in early career, how to, how to balance those things. You need money to move your lab forward. But if you get too focused on chasing the money, it could take you away from your core research brand identity. These are all the things that kind of come into the writing element, I think, in, in early career. But this research brand identity, I think, can really help you think about, you know, what to say no to. Because as time goes on, that's going to be probably your most critical skill, <laughs> being able to gracefully say no to. I was just, that was going to be my next question. How do you say say no? Because people come to you with a compelling thought and they it's a sell, sell, sell. And you think this is great, but you realize it's a time sink, a complete time sink. And it's only after you've committed to it. Is there a graceful way or have you in your career learned a, a great way to say no with a smile? Yeah. You know, uh, I've learned from other people who are very good at this. So there, I had a colleague at Oregon State when I taught there. Her name was Jane Lubchenco. And uh, she was chosen by President Obama to head up NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. And uh, President Biden's just selected her to be his climate advisor or science science advisor. So she's she's been an ultra successful academic, but has been tapped 
because of her skills that go beyond just science. And I remember asking Jane when she was just colleague Jane prior to all this fame and glory, you know, to serve on a committee. And I got an email back that was no, but it was like, I felt so blessed to get this no email from Jane Lubchenco because it was like, it was a way of saying no where she was, you know, stroking me in terms of, you know, doing this, this particular activity that needed a committee. And it looked like it was going to be so important for the university. And, but she was terribly sorry because of these particular commitments. She couldn't take part. And, you know, I wish you all the success and I'm here to, you know, cheer you on. And by the time I finished that email, it's like her no was almost like a yes, because it just felt so good to receive this from her. So there's an art to saying no, and it's a learned art. <laughs> and I, I'm sure I've, I still fumble with my saying no, but I always think of Jane Lubchenco as, you know, she could write a book on the art of saying no. Because the art of saying no has enabled her to do these things, to rise to the very highest levels of oceanography and to, you know, rise to these levels within the federal government for the very top scientific posts. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is critical because time management is everything, everything. Yeah. Oh, and gives you time to, you know, yeah, go to the, to, to be a, a high flyer uh, such as Jane. And I want to ask you, since, you know, you've accumulated a lot of, you know, tips in your career and a lot of skill in what you do. Do you think mentoring is something that, or going to somebody specifically to mentor you through writing, do you think that's a good idea? And is it possible without it being a time sink for the mentor versus the mentee? Do you think it's something that could be a, like done at universities? Or Yeah, I think it's done to some extent through one's postgraduate career. And that's probably where for most people it happens, you know, getting drafts commented upon and track changes from your PhD advisor, for instance. And I find with my own students in Canada now, PhDs are often a thesis by paper. So kind of stapling together, as it were, for three or four journal articles and calling that a thesis. So with the first journal article or paper the student writes, you know, the, the paper might be bled over in red ink. But by the second, third, fourth, it gets less difficult, less painful. Um, so I think, you know, one typically learns that way. But I'd say once you're in your career, I think it's uh, reading those papers that you think are really great and by osmosis, taking those pointers on. I think reading outside just for pleasure can be enormously helpful for your own writing and just getting you out of your head for, you know, your, your science and creating a bit of uh, work-life balance. Reading is just so important and reading for pleasure can, can come into your, your science. Certainly, you know, just for me reading the New York Times or The Guardian, I'm often struck by a word or a phrase and I'm writing it in my little, uh, you know, my little book, my little moleskin notebook, because, wow, I could use that, that phrase or word in a paper I'm writing. And I, I harvest them in, in my booklet. So when I'm, I'm doing my you know, daily writing, I'm often glancing at that to see whether there are some you know, tools, tricks, techniques I could you know, borrow from the reading I'm doing outside the science area. I like that you said that in that one 
you write a paper that you want to enjoy reading. And I remember, I think early on in my career, I used to love writing because I think there's a way of, you know, of writing that I enjoyed. But then I told myself when I was writing my thesis, if it's boring, then I know it's correct, you know, and, and because that's <laughs> what I would get from my supervisor because all my exciting words to describe things were were cut down size. Now, do you think the we can change or writing? I mean, obviously, there's always going to be a limit to how you'd write in scientific writing. But do you think there's a little bit more wiggle room now, do you think? Or should it, should we have the wiggle room, I think? I, I think I'm seeing more of more of that. I'm seeing, you know, more journalistic style of writing come into science writing. For instance, putting subject and verb up front in every sentence creates a punchiness to the writing that makes it more engaging. And of course, that's what you'd see in a newspaper. That's what you'd see in a, a New York Times number one best-selling spy novel. Uh, so it's, it's short sentences. It's subject and verb up front. It's being aware of, again, the status quo, what's wrong with it, how you go beyond it. And then one vehicle I see that's very helpful in a discussion, for instance, is to frame the subsections of a discussion as questions. That can really hook a reader. And these might be questions that have come up after the, the fact, meaning they weren't the questions that set up your objectives, but they're like puzzles, paradoxes. Uh, linked to your findings and what it might mean for others. And I think it's that kind of contextualizing things. It's this awareness of the literature that allows you to do that. That can really help. So reading is just everything, you know, in and outside your discipline, I think, for, for writing success. Even as a, as a reader, I think even as you, you've described that having the subheaders as questions, as a reader, it's something, and this goes back to citations, it'll be a paper I'll always come back to because I know they answered the specific questions that I was looking for. And and also now that we're in the age of, you know, search engine op optimizations, why not just have the question that everyone is asking? And then it's searchable on the internet. So guys, you know, what a way to, to get your site. Going back to metrics though, but we're not addicted to metrics, guys. That's just, you know, a mild tip. I wanted to ask you quickly, you know, I, I see we're coming up to the end of our... Um, of our discussion, but I'm having such a wonderful time. But this is a question I wanted and I asked some of my guests, what would you tell your younger self about writing? And, you know, this goes into writing thesis, research paper, grants, fellowship, and, and highlight any mistakes. And you're like, no, that was wrong. You should have done this. Or, but don't be too hard on your young self, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd probably start with uh, go to the gym more often. When I was... Um a new professor. I also had a new baby and a family at home, of course, my wife and I, and uh, new students and committees. And I was teaching new classes I'd not taught before. And the thought of a daily gym visit was just unthinkable. The guilt would have crippled me. How could I ever luxuriate at a gym for an hour, an hour and a half when I felt I was robbing everyone in my life of time? So only later in life do I realize just how crucial that is for you know, making me a better scientist, scientific writer, uh, husband, father, everything. So I, that would be probably the number one thing I tell my, my younger self. Don't feel guilt. Do it and it will help you and those around you. I think I'd also, uh, you know, maybe do some of these things that we've talked about today. 
linked to this top-down paper approach or the one-hour workday. But I'd also be telling myself that I didn't realize early on that that science and paper writing, it's kind of a, a way of thinking and being as much as it is a body of knowledge. There was a scientist uh, researches to see what everyone else has seen, but to think what no one else has thought. I think it was the first person to identify um, vitamin C, Solzhenitsy. He was a Hungarian Nobel Prize winner. Anyway, I just love that because I think in in early career, you're just consumed with the immediate. You're so overwhelmed with all these tasks, your, your to-do list runneth over. And how can you go about your day walking to work, biking along a bike path to work, your car ride, a walk in nature, and just be open to ideas that will come to you. Be bathed in this idea of science as a way of being and, you know, thinking what no one else has thought, but seeing, you know, what everyone else has seen. I might remind my early self or tell my early self about those things that I wasn't really thinking or reflective on as I was just trying to keep my nose above the waterline. Don't drown. Yeah, that's <laughs> Jeff. This is, these are wonderful. And I think even I can apply to my life today. I think these are really wonderful tips and pointers for our listeners. So I'd like to just say thanks. And I, I'm so sorry that, you know, we have to cut the the time short, but you know, this is going back to the one hour workday and prioritizing. We have to prioritize exercise and life and, and things like that. Uh, but I just want to say thank you so much um, for coming on the podcast, Jeff. It's really been an an absolute pleasure chatting to you and, and really an honor that you came to the podcast. So thanks so much for coming. Thank you so much, Christine. Great to meet you and keep up the great work with this podcast. I've really enjoyed your other episodes. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Jeff. Can you please share with our listeners uh, where they can find you and also where they can get your book? Yes, uh, the book, at wherever you buy books, typically Amazon or, or other online publishers. It's published through Wiley, but again, you can find it at any online bookseller. And I'm not on social media, <laughs> mostly because I don't have time to be, but uh, you can find me on the web at my, uh, my website. If you just uh, put my name into uh, a Google search engine, you should, you should be able to track me down that way. So thanks again, Christine. No problem, Jeff. And guys, we'll have all the information for you in the description box. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Please follow us on Twitter at mentor underscore podcast. That's mentor underscore podcast, where we'll let you know when new episodes are released. You can also listen to us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud by searching for your digital mentor podcast. Apart from Twitter, you can also reach us by email. So please send your comments and questions to inquiries at your digimentor.net. That's inquiries at your digi, D-I-G-I, mentor.net. As always, information on the episode and how to reach us will be in the description box, including how to connect with our guests and also links for more information and resources. And finally, like in season one, our goal, as always, is for the podcast to be shared as a resource. So please tell all your friends and colleagues about us. Thanks again and see you in a couple of weeks. This episode is supported by Advanced Courses and Scientific Conferences, a program which develops and delivers training and conferences that span basic research, cutting-edge biomedicine, and application of genomics in healthcare. Through engaging and networking, the events educate, inspire, and transform careers worldwide.
This episode is also supported by the Wellcome Sanger Institute. It undertakes large-scale research that forms the foundations of knowledge in biology and medicine. It uses the power of genome sequencing to understand and harness the information in DNA. The Sanger's discoveries are used to improve health and to understand life on Earth. <laughs>